So now let's look at Isaiah 57. Uh, next week, we're going to kick off a series that uh, Chris and I have been looking forward to for some time on the book of Romans. Um, we are going to tackle the whole book of Romans uh, starting next week and going, we're not sure how long, um, but, but we're real excited about it because we're in a building phase in this church. Uh, and it's not a building phase for a new building. Now, we do have a team, and we're working on that. Um, but the, the real growth of the church is not uh, bricks and mortar, but the real growth of the church is right here, us spiritually. And so we've got to get deep into the Word, and, and we've got to be grounded in His Word. Um, and so the book of Romans, or there may be no better book than the book of Romans to, to just build a, a very systematic uh, understanding of who God is, who man is, what happened to our world, and what God has done to, uh, to, to, to fix it, and what He's going to do to fix it, and, and our role in it. And so we are real excited about jumping into the book of Romans, and we're going to start that uh, next Sunday. But this morning, I want us to look at Isaiah 57. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and then jump over after uh, verse 2 to, to verse 13. Listen to the Word of God. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity and he enters peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. In verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, if you're trusting in idols. The wind will carry them off, a breath will take them away, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. I'm going to end reading right there. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we desperately need you this morning. I will just be a babbling fool unless I speak your word and your spirit blesses. We declare our utter dependence upon you. And so we beg you to come down by your spirit and to teach us, to make your word a light in our hearts. There is no deficiency in your word, but there's great deficiency in our hearts. So uh, illumine our minds to see, open our ears to hear, pierce us with your word, do surgery, O oh God, with your word this morning that we might be different, that we might think different thoughts, that we might live life with a different perspective, a true perspective, because we have sat under the teaching and the discipline of Your Holy Word. Oh God, would You come, for this is the Gospel, and we need its power to blow up in our hearts and minds this morning and change us, that we might go out different, that we might be Your church that, oh God, we might be a people who hope in the Lord. So be with us, oh God. Meet us where we are. Do your work that you might bring glory to yourself and good to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Downtown Church has been blessed. I have been overwhelmed by this reality of late. 
Uh, you just think back nine months ago, and we have doubled in size in terms of our attendance. Uh, we have increased by 40% in regard to our giving. Uh, God is doing great things. I look around the room, and I could tell so many stories this morning of what He's done to change hearts, of people that would never have been here a year, two years, three years, four years, five years ago, and are now here worshiping the Lord. God has been good to downtown church. We are growing. And yet, not all growth is good, is it? All I have to do is look at my waistline on many, many days and know that not all growth is good. There's some growth that can be damaging. And I know that, that we want to grow in a healthy way. We want to be lean and dependent and thirsty for God. We want to be pressed deep into Him. But if that's going to happen, then that, that message has to be placed before us constantly. And we have to constantly be asking ourselves, what is success? I was, I was interested, encouraged, and, and even challenged by a recent speech I heard by Hugh Freeze, of all people. Now, I am not an Ole Miss fan, all right? Some of you are saying, who is Hugh Freeze? Well, he's the new head coach of, of, uh, of Ole Miss, the Ole Miss Rebels. And uh, I listened to a speech of his to his team recently, and I was very encouraged. Now, he has a gospel background, and he, he is a believer. He used to be a Baptist preacher. Um, and, and listen to what he said to his team. He said, team, we will define success here when you come in the locker room after 60 minutes and you sit down to the guy next to you and you can say to him, I did every single thing in my power today to make sure that you were successful. Not me, but you. And when we get to that point, we're going to have success. And then he goes on. They were playing the Egg Bowl, which if you know what that is, it's, it's, it's when Ole Miss and, and Mississippi State, the two in-state rivalries, meet. And, and he goes on to say, he, he said, Now some teams in rivalries like this play out of hate for the other team. I love this. But that's not who we are. We play out of love for one another, for the fans and for the seniors. That's defining success in a different way. And we must define success in a different way. Our success is not being bigger and better and brighter than another church. How ridiculous. Because we are the church in Memphis. So what is success? I think Eugene Peterson, a man that has had a huge impact on me through his writings, uh, hits it very clearly. He said, if we have a nation of consumers, obviously the quickest and most effective way to get them into our churches is to identify what they want and offer it to them. Satisfy their fantasies. Promise them the moon. Recast the gospel into consumer terms. Entertainment, satisfaction, excitement, and adventure. Problem solving. Whatever. This is not the way that God brings us into conformity with the life of Christ. This is not the way that we become less and Jesus becomes more. Hallelujah. This is not the way in which our lives become available to others in justice and service. The cultivation of consumer spirituality is the antithesis, the exact opposite of a sacrificial, denying yourself congregation. Is our goal to be conformed to the image of Jesus? Not to grow big, not to have our own building, 
not to have this ministry or that ministry, but does everything we do, every breath we take, serve the purpose of seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ and increasing His fame in Memphis and beyond? Dear friends, that's the only measure of real success in the church of Jesus Christ. There is no other success. Everything else are just lights and bells and whistles. It's like a car that looks fancy but has no engine. (laughs) And haven't we been around churches like that? And if we have, don't we not want to be like a church like that? You see, the gospel has brought us where we are, this constant message that we are worse at any given moment than we ever allow ourselves to believe. You understand when I say that, I mean me. I mean, Chris means himself. He said it this morning. The church is messed up and I'm living proof. Those aren't just words. He believes that. I believe that I'm messed up. I believe that there's one king and head of the church. I believe that we have one pastor and his name is Jesus. Why? Because I am messed up and if the the, the future of this church rests in my hands, then God help us. If the future of the church rests in a body of elders, God help us. But thanks be to God that we have a king in head, and his name is Jesus. And he's risen from the dead. And he forgives us of our sins, and he uses people like us as we humbly and dependently live upon him and trust in him. Dear friends, that's how we must move forward. And this passage this morning points this out. How do we find true success? How are we going to continue in in the success of Christ in his name and his fame being known in the city and beyond? I think it's right here. In our text, so let's look at it. If we're going to be successful, then we have to know that our hope is not this life. Our hope is not this life. Our hope is not this church. Scott Fleming, a friend of mine that I told you about recently, strong believer in Jesus in this city, a strong leader um, in this city. His wife, just a few weeks ago, was taken by cancer. A couple I counseled a couple years ago and then conducted their wedding ceremony. Within the first year, the wife went back to an old boyfriend and ended the marriage. People in our own body, people that have been right here among us, uh, have expressed um, victory over sin and then gone right back to it and they're, they're no longer here among us. One of our very own sat right over here just a few weeks ago thanking God for the healing that had come to his life. Thanking God for restoring his family. Thanking God for delivering him from addiction. And this morning he's at 201 Poplar facing charges of attempted murder. Dear friends, you don't have to be a Christian very long to understand that life doesn't work out. And God didn't promise for life to work out this side of heaven. Do you understand that this morning? That's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying the righteous, look at verses 1 and 2, the righteous man perishes. You hear that? And no one lays it to heart. 
Devout men are taken away while no one understands. Righteous. Do you know what that word righteous means? It means someone who is right with God. Someone whom God knew before the foundation of the earth. And at the right time, according to God's will, He called him to Himself by His Spirit, regenerated his heart to believe, justified him, declared him just before God and righteous before God, and His Spirit rests upon him, and He's growing in Christ, and He's going to go to heaven. Those kind of people face injustice and death and suffering and trial. He uses the word devout. What does devout mean? It means somebody that God loves, somebody that's been set apart. A devout person is someone who looks to God and loves God. Mary and Martha understand this. They are the sisters of Lazarus, and Lazarus was one of Jesus' best friends. And Lazarus fell ill. I mean, he didn't just have a cold. I mean, the guy was really sick. And what did Jesus do? He waited. He waited three days. And what happened? Lazarus dies. I mean, Mary and Martha run to him and they say, Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. And Jesus waits and he dies. And what we see is that people whom God loves face trials and suffer and die. God doesn't promise to make life work out this side of heaven. He promises life will be better only in the sense that we will be His in the midst of the the suffering and the trials and the death. Uh, That's what He said in in John 16. He said, I have told you these things so that in Me you may have peace. Do you hear that? So that in Me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome trouble the world. We mustn't become disillusioned with God when life doesn't work out. We've got to get this straight, or we're not going to understand the the latter part of verse 1. He said, for the righteous man is taken away from what? Calamity. To get God, we have to believe that this life is cursed. And if this life is cursed, then is God cruel by taking one of His own children to glory? No. And that's what He's saying here. For the righteous man is taken away from what? Heaven? No. Calamity. The death, a premature death, something that we would refer to as premature death for a saint is nothing more than God taking a beloved child of God home to bless him and to give him greater blessing than he can ever give him on this earth. And here's the reality that every one of us must embrace to get the Christian life. This life is the only heaven people without Jesus will ever know. But it's the only hell that people that know Jesus will ever experience. Do you hear me? So if you don't know Jesus and you're refusing Him, then you better get wealthy. And you better get healthy. And you better find power, and you better find beauty, and you better find pleasure and satisfaction in this life, because this is the only heaven that you will ever know. But dear friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the one that we sung about this morning, the one that we declared had power over sin and death, the one who is our hope, 
the one who takes those of us who are broken and puts us back together to the point that when we are in glory, we are going to look angelic. And we're going to experience the very presence of God for eternity and feasting and laughing and joy and life and light. Then what in the world can happen in this life that is going to move us off center of trust in God? Because God didn't promise to bless us with better circumstances this side of heaven. He just simply promised to give us heaven. And that's our hope. Our hope is not this life. You see, the good things in this life are not meant to replace God. They are meant to give us an experience of who He is. That we might hunger for the real feast who is Jesus. Do you hear me? The present time in this life of the church better not replace Jesus. Now listen to me. Don't think that your real joy in life is is the reality that you have found a church that you love. Your real joy in life is the person of Jesus Christ whom you are experiencing through a church that you love. Do you get that? Because when this church one day becomes a church that you don't love anymore, you still have Jesus if He's the one that you're really trusting. But if He's not the one that you're trusting, then you're going to hate this church and you're going to find a new church. Now, there are reasons to find a new church. If we stop preaching what I'm preaching right now, find a new church. Or get rid of me or Chris or whoever's preaching it. And I mean that. I've witnessed so many trends in the church and I've seen it time and time and time again. It's so easy to be deluded by a church that we love. And to thinking that, oh, we finally found a church that's doing it right. I hope you think we're doing it right. <laughs> we're trying as hard as we can to do it right. But dear friends, the, the glory of downtown church is not that we're doing it right, but it's that we have the right one. And He is among us. And any good thing that we taste here is just a, ref a small reflection of His glory and His majesty. So worship Him, not downtown church. Our hope is not this life. But secondly, when we are disillusioned with God, it's because our present trust, whatever we're trusting in that moment, isn't strong enough to sustain us. When we are disillusioned with God, and we all become disillusioned with God. Our present, it's because our present trust isn't strong enough to sustain us. Rachel and I were watching The Voice this week. Anybody watch The Voice? It's better than the American Idol, okay? American Idol's old hat, gone American Idol, The Voice is in, all right? Uh, the Voice is a singing competition, and uh, we watched a 15, 16-year-old girl this week who came on and just blew everybody away. She was unbelievable. And the first thing out of Rachel's mouth was, boy, I hope she doesn't win because success will absolutely destroy her at that age. And I said, you're, you're right on. You see, there are not many 15 and 16-year-olds that can handle becoming an idol to the culture. Uh, Miley Cyrus and her twerking Grammy dance is kind of a case in point. Do I need to argue more with that? Uh, I don't think so. Here's the benefit 
the real benefit of trusting Christ and having Him at the center of your heart and being a worshiper and a disciple of Jesus. Failure, suffering, and tragedy will not kill you, and success will not change you. If you are grounded, really, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, then tragedy, the curse of this life, will not destroy you. Because nothing can take Christ from you. But success and beauty and power won't change you. Why? Because those aren't the things that you're worshiping. But Jesus is. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an altogether different power. And when we are truly and really believing Jesus to be our breath and life, our bread and significance, failure hurts but doesn't destroy, and success doesn't change who and what we are. The problem is our faith is kind of like the Wall Street ticker tape. You ever seen that on the bottom of CNN or some other news channel? It's always coming across, always up, always down, up, down, up, down, up, down. That's our faith. It's not that God is changing. It's not that the reality of who He is is changing. It's not that the gospel is lessening and and, and fluctuating with the Wall Street ticker tape. But it's that our faith is fluctuating with the Wall Street ticker tape. And so we are always battling to believe what is true. That's why we have to come here week in and week out and preach practically the same thing. Because the Bible is practically about the same thing from beginning to end. Sin and Jesus. (laughs) The emptiness of this world and the glory of the world to come because of Him. Thus we need the warning of verse 13. Look at verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Friends, whatever we hope for in any given minute better be strong enough to lift us on high. I was thinking about this last night watching football. I mean, these guys train all their lives to play ball. One game, one play, done. I mean, I see these big guys being carted off. Their legs disfigured, you know, their arm. You know, I saw one guy the other night in some guy. I can't remember what it was. You know, his finger was like out here, you know. I'm like, one play, it's done, it's over. That better not be your God. That better not define you. Is it a job? Is it getting married, not getting married, staying married? What is it for you? You see, whatever you put your trust in, whatever basket you put the the eggs of your heart in, better be able to sustain and, 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 and protect those eggs. You see, what God does in our lives is sometimes He gives us times of great blessing tangibly, like now. But sometimes He allows us to go through trials and suffering. You see, Romans 8.28, it really gives us um, real insight to Romans 8.28. For in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those whom God foreknew, He predestined to what? 
be happy in this. No, be conformed to the image of Christ. So what that means is God is using suffering to drive you deeper into Christ and He's using blessing right now for the purpose that we might taste and know that God is good. So it's the blessings uh, that have been raining down on our church. Are they driving us higher up and deeper into faith in the beloved Christ Jesus? Or are they making us more self-sufficient? Making us think that, oh, we've arrived. Now we can start telling other people how to do it and what to do. Do you see? And then lastly, our hope is God. If we're disillusioned with God, it's not because of Him. It's because we've taken our eyes off of Him and onto something else. But lastly, our hope is God. Well, that sounds like an easy, simple little point. It's really not. Well, it really is, but we need to do some work here. Uh, We were also watching Parenthood this week. Any Parenthood fans? Back on! Season premiere. I hadn't watched it all, so don't tell me the ending of the first one. Um, And Christina, one of the moms on the show, um, was offered a big promotion to run a campaign. And Christina, if you don't know about the show, she, um, uh, she just had cancer and went through treatment and was declared in remission, cancer-free, no sign of cancer. Uh, so she goes back to one of her good friends that she uh, made during uh, her cancer treatment um, who has relapsed and who was getting chemo, sitting in the chair literally getting her chemo treatment. And she sat down, Christina sat down, the mom who was offered this big job, sat down by her friend and was telling her about it. And the friend looked at her, you know, the friend had a uh, head covering on, you know, she had a bald head, cold, had a little jacket on. You could tell she just looked miserable. And as Christina is describing what decisions she's facing, should I run this guy's campaign or or just kind of wait and put it behind me? Um, This lady with cancer gives the philosophy of the world, couldn't give it any better. She said, is this what you want? Is this going to make you happy? Then don't wait. Go for it. And it was strong, and it was, a, it was an insightful moment, because here you have a woman who is facing death, and she said, go for it. Whatever makes you happy now, go for it. You know, the most dangerous false teaching is the teaching that has an element of truth in it. And the element of truth in that statement is this, God does want to satisfy His people. He is longing for us to be satisfied. He has sent His Son to give us a new heaven and a new earth one day, someday. He has sent His own Son and then He has raised Him to glory and He has ascended on high. And what is He doing? He's preparing a place for you and me. Can you imagine the kind of place that the Lord Jesus, our Creator and Sustainer, the One uh, whom we came from, the One who knows what really satisfies? Can you imagine what kind of place that He is preparing for us? But dear friends, that place is so glorious and our hope as Christians is so glorious because that is our home, not this world. And God's greatest passion in life is not to make us happy in this life, 
but to take us home that we might be forever joyous and satisfied in Him and by Him forever. You see, listen to these words in Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must seek to be happy. No, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Why? Because he wants us to be miserable? No, because there's something so much better. He just can't wait until we enter those gates and we are with him and the party begins. He likens heaven to a wedding feast. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you want to know how to really live, then don't live for this world. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? Other translations say their very soul. I have wrestled. I think if there's one passage that I've wrestled with more, I don't know which one it is since I became a Christian. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him? What is He talking about here to lose your life? What does this mean? And here's my conclusion on it. Whoever seeks happiness as a norm of life can find it this side of heaven. You hear me? Whoever wants to be happy... This side of heaven can, can possibly find it. But it will only last until death and probably before then. You see, you can be happy. If you want to be happy, then make a bunch of money. Find a bunch of girls, a bunch of men. Build a business. Have some plastic surgery. If you want to be happy, you can get it. But you can't know peace. And your soul can't rest in one that no matter what happens to you in your your life, if all of your dreams are dashed, you still know joy and peace. Why? Because your, 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 your investment of your soul is not in being happy in this life, but being joyful in the life to come. And all of us must struggle with that every single day. My gosh, there's so many things that I want in this life. There's so many things that I want more than I want Jesus on so many days. But you know why we're all here? You know what the church is? The church is here to correct each other and say, brother, don't invest in that. It's bricks and mortar. It's going to burn. It's going to be done with. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. I grew up somewhat in the country. I don't want to make it sound like I grew up in some real royal, rural setting. I mean, it was out in Bartlett. We had 20 acres, okay? This was back when Bartlett was out of, out of Memphis, pretty much. But we had a pond. And I love that pond, and I spent a lot of time fishing in it and um, swimming in it and the whole thing. But we had some trees around that pond. And one thing I noticed about those trees is the tree would always kind of grow toward the water. I mean, those roots are like, all right, I'm thirsty. I need to drink. So where do I go? It goes toward the water. Listen to verse 15. I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with one who's contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
Man, I tell you. Here's, I'm about to give you some incredible theology. Listen up. It doesn't get any better than this. How can we say that God is not blessing us when we encounter real sickness or loss or death of those we love or whatever it is if the best thing God can do for us is to give us a taste of Himself? You see, here's the problem. Typically and naturally what we do is we take the roots of our soul and we will place them next to about anything other than Jesus. I mean, we will play lip service to Jesus. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I mean, I go to church and I do, I worship, I raise my, I'm a a Christian. But what am I really trusting? Where are my roots sinking deep into? What are they? They're sinking. They're saying, man, if I only have, and I only can look like that, if I could just have their life, if I could just have this, man, they're just, our roots are right there. And you know the best thing God can do for us? He can uproot us and He can put us right here and make us thirsty and say, now you drink of me. Why? Because He's mean? No, because that's where real life is. And so are you in a dry and weary land right now? It may be. No, it is. Why? Because it's right where God has placed you. So take the roots of your soul and don't place them into other things. Don't put your hope in other things. If I just this, if I just that, if they just this, if they just that. But say, no, all I need is Jesus. Help me believe and forgive me for my unbelief. God lives with the one who's contrite and lowly. This is huge. Contrite and lowly. Contrite in the Hebrew means crushed. Lowly means one who is... Down here, but looking up. One who's content with God. Now, those are two radically different things. All of us are crushed at one time, but typically when we are crushed in our own flesh, we're not looking up, we're looking within. We're telling everybody, oh, woe is me. I'm crushed. God has slain me. Life is miserable. Just look at them. Why do they get to live like that? And look at my life. We're crushed, but we're not lowly. You see, you can be poor or very rich and be crushed and be self-consumed. It has nothing to do with your bank balance. It has nothing to do with your health or wealth. It has nothing to do with anything but the condition of your soul. And so, when we are contrite and lowly, we become a powerful force for God. Because people stand back and go, now wait a minute, they ought to be complaining. And yet they are content. They have peace. Look at how this ends. Look at how this chapter ends. I didn't read it. But the very last words of this chapter in verse 21, there is no peace, says God, for the wicked. There's happiness. But there's no peace. Why? Because what they're trusting in, they know, can change on a dime. Can you be contrite and lowly and have health and wealth and beauty? Yeah, look at Psalm 51. Look at David. God didn't take his looks from him. God didn't take his money from him. God didn't take his power from him. But boy, was he contrite and lowly. Cursing the day he was born. (laughs) And yet looking up to God. And what did God do? He began to use him. You see, because God uses the, the contrite and the lowly. 
not the proud and the educated and so forth. Are you contrite and lowly? God can use you. Are you contrite and lowly? Then Jesus is near. Friends, we're experiencing great times at downtown church. But we will stop growing like this at some point. (laughs) We'll settle in somewhere at some point. We'll have a home at some point. Some of our ministries may fail. There may be some failures among our leaders in this church. But you know what? We will survive and we will thrive if success is Jesus and nothing else. So, dear friends, are our roots planted next to the river of life? And may God bless us. And whether we face trials and suffering or whether He continues to bless for years to come in tangible ways, may He be glorified because it's all about Him. And may it truly be all about Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for this passage. Thank You that You're a God that dwells in the contrite and lowly. Oh, Father, we thank You that that's the kind of God that You are. Now move our hearts to believe it and move our hearts to give sway to You, to be humbled by You, that we may live confidently of You and Your work in our lives. Bless downtown church, Father. Continue to bless us. But may we taste and know that you are good, and may you get more fame and glory in and through us. And Father, in times of suffering and trial, may we continue to praise and worship your name, because you are never changing. And you're good today, you'll be good tomorrow, and you'll be good the day after that. Because nothing is better than you, and nothing can change you. Thank you that you are indeed our treasure. May we lean into you, in Jesus' name. Amen.